Welcome to Thy Strong Word, and good morning. We open our Bibles today to 2 Samuel chapter 10. When King David sends his envoys to express condolences to the Ammonite king after the passing of his father, they are met with suspicion and humiliation. Fueled by wounded pride, the Amorites join forces with the Arameans, their allies, and prepare for war against Israel. Sensing the impending threat, David dispatches Joab, his trusted general, to lead the Israelite army into battle. And what follows is a harrowing tale of strategic warfare, shifting alliances, and the quest for victory in the face of overwhelming odds. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Friday, June 23rd, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought by a generous contribution from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about what LHF does at lhfmissions.org. They produce a variety of Lutheran resources in foreign languages, and you can learn more about all their translating and publishing work by giving them a call or by, again, reaching out to their website at lhfmissions.org. Well, please join me in welcoming my guest this morning to help us explore, divide, and discern 2 Samuel chapter 10. It's the Reverend Stephen Tice. He's the pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Good morning, Pastor Tice, and welcome back to the program. Good morning, sir. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here today. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm doing better than I deserve, which is always a pretty good place to be. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> I, I, uh, I The text today is a little on the short side, but, you know, it contains an interesting event and in, in sort of foreshadows a lot of the divisions that David is going to continue to face over the next, well, the way we look at it, the next several chapters. But uh, but before we dive into that, maybe it's a good idea to start our time off together in prayer. Would you lead us in that prayer? Certainly. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we rejoice in the good things you pour out upon your people. We thank you for the gifts of sunshine and rain, for suitable weather, for harvest of crops, for the opportunity to enjoy your gift of creation. We thank you also for the relationships you bless us with between and among fellow believers and within our families. And yet, Lord, because sin is still in the world and still in us, we have problems, we have difficulties, we have challenges in how we relate to one another, and we see it also between nations. Lord, you are the ruler of all things. You are the king of all kings. We ask that you bless our study today and that you would bless the world in which we live in the midst of warfare and conflict and death and destruction between nations and ethnic groups across borders or within boundaries of countries. All of these things are the work of Satan. Christ our Savior has conquered Satan for us and defeated sin and promised us a resurrection when he comes again. Until that time, Lord, help us to use your word and by your spirit guide us to walk behind the leader you have appointed to us, our Savior Jesus and walk within his people, the church, by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, our text today begins with uh, the king of the Ammonites passing away and his son taking over. Uh, but, you know, yesterday we talked a little bit about how 
you know, David was showing this kindness, this this loyalty even to the house of Saul by giving the grandson of Saul, the son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth, a place at his table. We're going to see that kindness of David continuing today, at least at the beginning of the event that we're going to cover. Uh, but anything you want the people to know, though, about before we get into our text today? Well, it, I think it's important to keep in context what we've read earlier in Second Samuel, that there's always a little tension between the people of Israel because they are still seeing themselves, most of them, first and foremost, as members of a tribe rather than as members of a people led by one leader. This is a challenge the world still faces. As, as one pastor once put it, the real focus in the Christian life is that we are called to unity in Jesus Christ. And far too often, we, we look for ways in which, as individuals, we find somebody who has an affinity with our, our perceptions or our, our priorities, and then we gravitate to those. And unintentionally, but unfortunately, then we cause a separation. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. We have this need to remember that if we all unite close to the leader, who is Jesus Christ, when we draw close to Christ, we also draw close to each other. And when we push ourselves away from each other, we also are pushing away from Christ and his body. And I think 2 Samuel in particular works through that whole thing with the people of Israel as David begins reign and some follow him and some don't. And throughout the time, he remains the anointed of the Lord. And we'll talk about that in more detail here in this chapter. Well, you know, I can't help but think about when you talk, you know, they were thinking very tribally instead of recognizing the unity that they had um, in, of course, Yahweh under David. But, you know, and I know that I think that your main illustration was just talking about Christians today who are so divided over various things, and we certainly have our unity in uh, in God, in Yahweh, under the Son of David, Jesus. But I, I would expand that even more globally, right? Because, yes, we in the United States are a confederation of, of states under, you know, united together in, in a one federal unit. But isn't that the case for the whole world, right? Every country is very tribal, and yet we're all supposed to be unified mm -hmm. under our Creator. Yeah, and so yeah, it just it, it keeps on going. The fact that we should always be seeking for unity. And I'm glad you brought that up this morning because uh, that's something we all need to hear time and again. Yeah, and this is uh, an ongoing result of the impact of the the disobedience after the flood when they wanted to build the tower instead of spread out across the world as God instructed, and then. To make them do what he said, he gave them different languages. And so the impact of sinful rebellion continues to be felt in those factors throughout the world, even to this very day. And sometimes we overlook that fact that all sin has a, I'm going to use the word, cumulative negative effect. And we're so used to it in our daily lives that we sometimes miss the fact that it is the cumulative effect of sin on humanity. Absolutely. It continues to, I say, cumulative and compounding. Even, yes, right? I mean, absolutely. Just, it continues to wreak havoc. Well, uh, this chapter 10 opens with the death of Nahash, who's the king of the Ammonites, um, and Nahash's son, uh, Hanun. Um, that's how I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> he's, now, he's now in charge. Uh, let's read the first, oh, I don't know, five verses. Here we go. 
After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent his servants to console him concerning his father, and David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But those of the Ammonites said to Hanun their lord, Do you think that because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. And when it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. All right, so pausing right there. So we have the Ammonites. Tell us a little bit about who the Ammonites are. I mean, yeah. we, we hear about them time and again. It's probably good for a refresher. Sure. Well, the Ammonites are descendants of the family of Lot. Um, we have the sons of Lot's two daughters, Moab and Ammon, and they move east of the Jordan, settle there, and those descendants then become a, a nation group, if you will. And the people of Israel have taken over the land that was the Canaanite land, keeping in mind that the Ammonites and the Moabites are not Canaanites. They are outside of those group of seven nations. So these are descendants of the relatives of, of the family of Abraham. And this particular territory has been, well, I'm going to say squeezed out, attacked by other tribal groups and other nations so that they've been pushed further away from their former territory right up to the edge of the, the Jordan River. Now they're back up toward the hills. And if you go to the country of Jordan today, the capital city of Jordan is Amman. And so the name is still maintained in that particular geographical feature. That history is, is still vividly portrayed by the fact that the name of the capital is the name that's the same as this nation, which comes from the son of Lot. So we see a, a long continuity. We also see the fact that these people weren't readily willing to accept the Israelites when they first come out of the, the challenge of the wilderness wanderings. But as we're seeing here in this chapter, David had a good relationship with Nahash, the king who had just died. So David had gone to the, the trouble, if you will, of making a treaty or at least a, an agreement with this distant relative that he will not try to take their land as long as they stay where they are. They're not in Canaan. Now, as the Syrians get involved in this whole thing, which we heard about in previous chapters, now you've got a different dimension because David will fight the Syrians. And that shows up in the later part of this chapter. But keeping in mind that David sends his messengers because he wants to have a continued peaceful relationship with, if I can put it this way, the distant relatives who live on the, the escarpment up the top of the hill, not in the Jordan River Valley per se, but up in the, the Arabian Plateau. So he's, he's trying to maintain a, a secure eastern border that he's already had with the previous king. Uh, Nahash, of course, pops up for us in 1 Samuel. That's when the Hamanites had attacked the city and told them that he'll make a treaty with them so long as they gouge all their right eyes out. So <laughs> they, they tend to have a pretty complicated relationship, but the Ammonites are defeated by Saul, 
they pop up here. And, and what you're saying is absolutely true. David is not King Saul. And David shows, uh, well, he shows, it says here in verse 2, David said, I will deal loyally. That, that word there is kesed, right? Kesedim. I will, I will show steadfast love, I think, is a, mm-hmm. is a favorite way for us to translate that. Yeah. I'm seeing a new way of translating that called loyal love. I, I, think, I, I think I prefer steadfast love. Yeah. But regardless, David is demonstrating a loyalty to them. And, and it says right here, because his father did. So apparently, as you've indicated, at some point, Nahash has, has had some sort of treaty with David. Um, I think this is interesting. It shows us how when a, a king changes or when leadership changes, just how fickle that can be in our relationships with other nations. I mean, even today and certainly um, back then, too. Um, but then this showing compassion and forgiveness and love, this steadfast love, like the grace that we've received through Christ, this dealing kindly, um, I, I think that David is embodying that. But as we're going to see, if it's not, I guess if it's not uh, um, requited, right? If it's unrequited, mm-hmm. right. then, well, <laughs> then there's, there's all bets are off, so to speak. Well, it's, um, it reminds me yeah. of, of this, uh, the gospel readings where Jesus sends the apostles out and says, go into this town, mm. this house, and share your peace there. And if, if a man of peace resides there, then you will receive back your your peace and if not when you leave shake shake the dust off your feet and i think it comes back to way back in the garden of eden god comes seeking with a desire to restore the relationship god does not come seeking in order to push us further away but to draw us close and as the messiah and a type of christ david's doing exactly that he is working at drawing close rather than pushing away and this is part of the nature of, of God's relationship with us as human beings, most evident in, in sending Jesus among us. David shows steadfast love, but his messengers are humiliated. Oh, yeah. And that's because this new king has taken some bad advice from his princes, just sort of, I don't know, they're sowing the seeds of doubt. You know, here they could have had this good relationship with the people of Israel, assume, assuming a continuing good relationship with the people of Israel. But there is somebody in his midst that's sowing seeds of doubt in his ear that, hey, listen, these guys are up to no good. They're spies. They're going to get you. And I can't help but also think about how how when we go to deal with our Lord and Savior, you know, the anti-type of the type David, when mm-hmm. we deal with God, Satan does the same thing. He whispers in our ear, hey, listen, you know, God doesn't have your best interest in heart or you're not good enough for God or, you know, he made you this Mm -hmm. way. He's going to punish you even though he gave you this this desire to sin, which is not exactly how it works. But those are the lies that Satan whispers in our ear. Yeah. I was just talking with someone this uh, past week about that very topic that Satan does this. He'll take up something that's a, a grain of truth and then Veers, veers off of it, but this lying to us so that we don't trust God's word. And I was thinking about a little bit of foreshadowing when Solomon uh, dies in the kingdom, then gets passed on to his son, and his son Rehoboam doesn't listen to the advice of the wise elders, but rather the inf- the advice of the younger ones who say, "Don't make it easy, make it tough. Show how." powerful you are by being worse than your dad was as far as taxes, etc. And and so 
when you get a very bad advice given to a leader, things really go wrong. And, and mm-hmm. another way of putting that, and, and I think it's important for us to identify this in today's world, not just in our country, but throughout the, the global climate, bad policy will never bring good results, no matter how well-intentioned someone might be. If the policy and advice you're getting is no good, you won't get the good results you're looking for. And this, this particular situation, David seeks to maintain peace and build the relationship and Hanun gets really bad advice. The princes of the Ammonites said to their, their master, their lord, do you think David really sent these people to honor you? No. He's sending mm-hmm. these guys right. to spy so they can attack and overthrow it. Planting seeds of doubt, and as you said, Satan leading astray. And what does Satan want? Does Satan want peace between the Ammonites and, and the Israelites, or does Satan want war and death? I mean, he's a liar and a murderer from the beginning, so clearly he's seeking death. And I think as, as we look at throughout the world today, what does Satan want to do? He wants to destroy the peace and tranquility that allows the gospel to be shared from place to place. He is one, ultimately, in the big picture of things. Even though he's been defeated by Christ, he will not surrender. He seeks to destroy and damage all life, and in particular, the followers of Jesus. So when we see here with the Ammonites, a chance there that they might have a, a reconciliation or continued peace, and in fact, some of them might come to identify with and follow the God of Israel as their God. It's the God of Abraham, and if they know Abraham is an ancestor, or at least a relative, there's, there's this, this potential for God's word and God's life to flourish among the Ammonites, and Satan can't stand that. And the humiliation of the servants. The other thing that struck me is that David goes out to meet them, it says. He sent to meet them. Now, it doesn't mean he went specifically, but he sent somebody out ahead of time so that they didn't come back to Jerusalem and be publicly humiliated in the presence of the the family of the king or the, the priests or any of those. He has them stay down at Jericho. David is very concerned about what's best for his servants, those who work under his direction, so that he makes arrangements to say to them, I see that you've been uncovered. I will allow you to remain in a place of covering. I will allow you to grow back that which has been removed. And this is how God treats you and me. He covers us with Christ's righteousness. When our sinfulness is exposed to God, he comes to it and covers us. Now, if we, if we don't come to God, if we're not going back to the one who covers our, our sin and our guilt, but instead flaunt it, well, then everybody sees it. Now, these guys weren't flaunting anything. They were humiliated, right. publicly embarrassed is probably too, too mild a phrase. Uh, but David, in his great concern for those who serve him, sees that they are indeed cared for and that their humiliation is reduced because their king says, I sent you for this task. You were mistreated as my followers. And I can't help but what Jesus, think about what Jesus mm-hmm. said to his disciples. You know, if they do this to the, the rabbi, what will the teachers get? You know, but the, the students rather. And so we see that David is saying, okay, they've done this to you, but they, they aimed it at me. Now I will take the full humiliation they've dumped on you and assume it as mine by covering you and leaving you stay there until your beards grow back and you can return, well, without the humiliation of of the disfigured appearance. And as my servants, I take responsibility for maintaining your security too. 
And that's how God calls us in Jesus. He says, you know, I, I shelter you in my wings, uh, to use the psalmist's image. I will guard you and keep you. And, and Jesus says, you know, the angels will be with you and, and will do what you need done to keep you safe. I don't abandon my own. And, and I see this as really important to understand that David sends them at first and they insult David's servants. In the next part of the chapter, we're going to find out that they go to war, and we'll see how that progresses. Sure, and and I do want people to understand sort of what's going on here, too. You know, when, when he takes his servants and he shaves off half their beard, um, that's certainly a, a defacement of their masculinity, okay? But at the same time, and I'm not sure if they would have had this in mind, very possible— but this also makes them in violation of the standards of the law. You know, Leviticus 19 says you shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. So he, they're making – again, I'm not – it's unclear if it's intentional, but it's especially egregious for these Hebrews. But then the second part where they cut their garments off, essentially they cut them off right at their hips so that they're – more uh, private areas, let's say, are exposed. And we, we see this um, in Isaiah 20. Uh, the king of Assyria shall lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. So this was a pretty common tactic to symbolize, like, castrating your enemies. Um, and and so this great brings great shame, as as we recognize. But again... It becomes in violation of the law for the Israelites because in Numbers 15, it talks about having, you know, the tassels on the corners of their garments. And, you mm-hmm. know, it, so we see we see here that and now I'm just piggybacking on what you're saying is that David looks at them and they haven't just been sort of dishonored in the sense that all prisoners of wars are dishonored. But they've also been there's an attempt by their enemies to make them ritually unclean or ritually uh, inappropriate or in violation of their own law. Mm -hmm. And David could have, in theory, punished them for that. And some kings would have, right? You know, you, you, you are my, you're, you're my men. You should have fought against them. You should have resisted this. But, but no, as you said, he protects them and and he knows these things are going to happen and he's with them. He doesn't abandon them um, and, and yet instead provides for them. So yeah, they hang out in Jericho until, they can conform to the standards of the law, but yeah. also, as you said, that he protects their reputation. Could you imagine walking into Jerusalem like that? Yeah, um, this is, he protects this is, their reputation. Yeah, this is the work of a real king. The, the protect the people, serve the people, and then when the successes come, the king shares it. We saw that earlier when they went out to attack and they had the spoil, and part of the group of the soldiers fighting didn't want to share the spoils with those who didn't go to battle. And and David's right. response to that was, no, no, we're all together in this, so they get a share too. And and so we see this pattern in David's behavior to others in Mephibosheth, last, yesterday's lesson, where he says, I honor the covenant I made with your father David, or your father Jonathan, but it also brings honor to David as the one who is, A, a keeper of the oath, and B, one who provides for those who may be perceived by others as a threat that should be removed. Absolutely. David's steadfast love is showing forth here, a steadfast love that points us to the steadfast, the chesed of our uh, God through Jesus. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. Um, and so we are looking at this. Uh, I guess I'll go ahead and read the next section, even though we're getting pretty close to the break, starting with verse 6. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Jobah, two, I'm sorry, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Maak with a thousand men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Maak were by themselves in the open country. We're going to pause right there at eight, sort of as the as the intensity, as the drama builds. But we see here the Amorites are Ammonites, pardon me, are hiring mercenaries from the Aramean or the Syrian kingdoms. Mm-hmm. Yep. And they're taking a preemptive strike move, if you will. They see their offensive, they've become a stench in his nostrils. And so now they're they're they themselves are going to take the action against David, not wait for David to come to them. Certainly saw that they saw this coming though, right? Oh, I mean, you yeah. don't you don't desecrate a man's messengers when he's trying to send you good news, right? They say, don't shoot the messenger. Here's like, don't shave the messenger, right? He's just, they were coming to say nice things. Yeah. They should have known. So, which is probably the intention of the bad advice, right? Yeah. Spark they, a war. Bring, yeah. And if you always got to ask the question, who benefits from a war? And the people who benefit from the war usually are the ones giving the advice to go to war. So. Yeah, right. Yeah. And they're usually not the ones going. That's right. They stay behind and send others in their place. So they go hire mercenaries, as you pointed out. Well, and we see these mercenaries, and they they seem pretty eager too, right? They're, oh, yeah. they're going to jump at any opportunity to attack David. They're absolutely yeah. ready. Yeah. And the other thing, we we tend to overlook this in our country because we've had a different standard of, of how we behave in battle than, than traditional warfare. Our soldiers, our Marines, our Air Force personnel, Naval personnel, when they go to battle, they don't loot the bodies. They don't take booty off the the dead they don't go through the village and that's our our military code of uniform justice doesn't allow that and so to us the idea that you would benefit by killing enemies and taking their possessions away whether it be the, the weapons they carry or the gold that's on their person whatever if you read any european history one of the common events after the battles that happened in the 17 1800s is people would go through the battlefield checking to see if they could get coins out of the pockets or cutting the silver or gold buttons off of uniforms. The looting was common. That would have been mm-hmm. one of the potential benefits of going to combat with David because he's got all this wealth that he's taken from other nations in prior combat. So there's there's a, a storehouse to be raided if they can defeat David. So part of their pay is probably not, not only what they negotiated to go into battle, but then they get to reap the rewards of the battle, right? Yeah, the old the old pay for the uh, Western cow cowboy riding the the range for a particular rancher was forty a month and found. Oh, right. Yeah. Yes. So whatever you happen to well, find while you're out there working, that's yours. <laughs> well, I tell you what. Why don't we take a few moments as we think about the the rising action in our story, but we'll come back and we'll keep on going and see what happens next. Folks, don't go anywhere. We'll be uh seeing you on the other side.
These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Stephen Tice, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Thanks for joining us this morning. I sure pray that God is blessing you through our study. Thy Strong Word can be heard in St. Louis on AM850, but if that doesn't quite reach you for any reason, maybe you live out of town, out of the state, out of the country, you can listen live or on demand at kfuo.org. That's a good thing to remember as you share the program with others. And if you want to take the show on the road, you can listen to us as a podcast on your preferred podcasting platform and or this is really neat on KFEO's own mobile app that's available for iPhones and Android phones. You can catch up on any of your favorite programs or listen live as it happens. And if you want to ask me a question or make a comment, you can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. Just search for Phil Boo and uh, drop by. Say hello. All right. Well, Pastor, before the break, we just had the rising tension. The Ammonites are coming out. They've drawn up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. The Syrians are, are all over the place, but they're by themselves in the open country. Now verse 9. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the, the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may Yahweh do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. And then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. That's ending with verse 14 so far. So, yeah, brother, right? Yeah. You, you, you take the ones on the left, I'll take the ones on the right. Here we go. But there's a, there's a sign here, though, that they're trusting in the Lord, which is mm -hmm. something that's going to be in their favor. Yeah. Well, this is, this is the key concept. You know, that we, we might remember the phrase that, um, you know, we don't trust in our own strength, for the battle belongs to the Lord. He is the one who fights with us, fights for us. And you go back through the... The uh, books of Moses, you find the Israelites in the wilderness and then coming out of the wilderness again and again when they go to, to battle and they are trusting in God, they succeed. The time that in particular jumps out that they were defeated was when Joshua's entering the land and they've conquered Jericho and now they go to fight at Ai and God lets them be defeated because someone disobeyed. Someone disrupted the unity bluntly by seeking their own wealth and their own welfare. What we see here with Joab 
and Abishai, his brother, is that they have a uniform plan that one will help the other if something gets really bad. Now think about it. The, the Ammonites are inside. They're at the city gate. They can go inside and be secure and, you know, withstand a siege, if you will. The mercenaries, they're out in the open country. They're the ones with the horses, the chariots, if they have them. And, and they have the mobility. And keeping in mind that you and I don't fight this way anymore, so we're not really trained in this concept, this is the um, advance and, and put pressure on the enemy and then break through where they're weak. And these two brothers with the Israelite army are saying, well, we're going to help each other out and what happens is whatever the Lord seems good to him, because we are fighting for our people and the cities of our God. And that's ultimately for us why we see this as God going to work through this military tool. They are God's servants for God's purposes. We don't often remember that when we think about the military, but with the Israelites in particular, God is using them to carry out his will for the people of Israel as a group, for the individual believers within that people group, but also to punish those who have turned away from God's word and God's truth over the centuries prior to the Israelites coming to this area, this territory. And as they as they go to war, they discover that once the battle starts, the enemy turn around and run. Now, do they run right. because the Israelites look so terrifying? We're not told one way or the other, but clearly God is the one causing this to happen. He forces the Syrian group to run away, and the Ammonites, they see that the Syrians are running off. They go back into the city and shut the doors so that they're behind secure gates. And then Joab, having fought, and we don't know how many were killed this time, and he does fight them right now, then he goes back to Jerusalem, goes back to the capital city. Joab makes a report to David. And in this process, we're seeing God accomplishing his will. And his will isn't always clear to us. What we struggle with as human beings, what I struggle with, what you and other Christians struggle with, is God allows certain things to happen. Uh, I was reading something this past week, uh, you know, the, the question of, when these bad things happen in the lives of people, where was God? And there are some people who will actually say, well, God was distracted by many other things in the world, so he couldn't pay attention to that problem. That's not at all what Scripture teaches. It's right. a human, human equivalent pattern where we treat God as if he were more like us than unlike us. And this is you know, part of the challenge for, I think, for all of us, is to recognize that God is not like us even though humans were created in God's image, God is still completely other. So that what you and I don't understand is that God has a purpose beyond what we can immediately see. And so when something happens, you know, you know people have this, this concern about God uh, as, as the one who is ruler of all things, then why does he act the way he does? And they read the Old Testament and they say, well, God looks like a, a savage destroyer how can he possibly the good be the good and caring God we think of when we think of Jesus? And our problem is we want God to fit our patterns and our understandings. And we see here in this battle that, that God sends his army out to kill. Now, most of the guys run away before a lot of killing takes place in this first occurrence. But 
we see that God uses tools that you and I wouldn't pick. Now, in the New Testament, he goes exactly the opposite direction. He chooses the weak and the foolish and the things that are not to overcome the things that are and the powerful. And Jesus, by definition, says, I didn't come to conquer this world for the sake of ruling here. I came to gather people together so that I can take them to be with the Father forever. So we see a, a pattern of God doing things entirely differently than we would, which I think for Christian congregations is a challenge when we, we think, well, our membership has, has declined or attendance is down, or in some cases, you know, the, the community has changed and, and we're not able to, to function the way we did before. And some people have the mistaken belief that God has moved on as opposed to God has given us a different opportunity. How do we now use what God's gifted us with to use those things God's granted us to do the work the church has given? And, and the work of the church is not to keep doing what we've done before so that everything looks the same. It's to bring Jesus to the community in which we are so that they can be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And God's tools don't change. It's his gifts in the Word of God, the sacraments, the people of God sharing that. But the community around us changes, so how we share it might have to change, or how we approach people may be different than it was before. But the tools don't change, and the purpose of the church is still to bring Jesus to the people among whom we live. And that's not warfare against the people, that's warfare against Satan. Let's talk about that warfare against Satan. You know, here we have a warfare against the enemies of God, people who have set themselves up as enemies of God. Um, I meet regularly, well, once a month with uh, many different pastors of my area, as many pastors do. We call it usually call it something like a ministerium or a ministerial association. You know, a lot of pastors do this, some pastors don't, but I do. And we meet with these guys. I meet with these guys, and we talk about all kinds of things that are shared uh, common concerns amongst us all. And recently we had someone who come and visit with us, and he's talking about how do churches respond or even prepare them their people to respond to some of the trouble, some of the people who have set themselves up as enemies against us today. And I think it's very difficult because you think of Jesus, who is, shows compassion on his enemies. You look at God's instruction to the people of Israel to literally go to war with some of their enemies. Um, and you say, well, where do we where do we fall? Of course we want to fall uh, with the um, with with Jesus who calls us to be compassionate, but sometimes compassionate means stepping up, speaking the truth, mm -hmm. uh, and which even leads yeah. to suffering the consequences. So when I look at this, and I and I do have a kind of a point, and when I look at this, I, I think of them coming up with this plan, right? They say, Hey, listen, if the Syrians are too strong for me, you help me. If the Ammonites too strong for you, I'll help you. They say, be courageous. Let's be of good courage. We're fighting for God. Um, and then they say, may Yahweh do what seems good to him. So this sort of has the whole idea of um, thy will be done, O Lord. But here's, I guess, my point. They show up to the battlefield, though. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They don't say God's going to do what he wants, so we're just going to hang out at home. They say God's going to do what he wants, <laughs> but I'm still going to show up to fight. Yes. And while our fight today is not with swords, um, it, it certainly is still a battle that we wage. And yes, the Lord is with us, but it takes showing up to the fight, not just waiting for the Lord to act. I think that second position is nearly putting the Lord to the test. Yeah, I 
don't remember who the person was. Eh, well-known individual, so I, I just make sure nobody thinks I made this up on my own. I can't remember the guy's name, but he said, 80% of being successful in life is just showing up. Um, oh, sure. I've used that and heard that too, yeah. Yeah. And so the understanding that they were where the battle was. They were not staying away, saying, we'll let God deal with it. They were right there where the battle is, saying, whatever the Lord thinks is best is what will happen. And the uh, the prayer, I'm trying to remember years ago, there was a movie I watched called Patton, you may have seen it, where he calls up the chaplain and says, I need a prayer. And then he requests a particular type of prayer for God to defeat the enemies and give victory to his army. Now, in and of itself, some people think, well, that's that's a terrible prayer. But the question really is, if you think the cause is worthy of fighting, don't you think it's worthy of asking God to help you have victory? And if the answer to the first question is, yes, it's worth fighting, then it's certainly worthy of asking God to help you overcome the enemy. And and the, the challenge is this, I'm going to call it false perception, that as loving Christian people, we can never say things that are harmful or negative to others. The issue is not, is it harmful or negative? The issue is, are they my words or are they God's words? And it's like, it's like the doctor who comes and tells us, you have a tumor. We must cut this tumor out. It must be removed. You can't survive if the tumor remains in you. And somebody says, well, I'd like to get a second opinion. Why? Well, they just want to make sure that the surgery is necessary, sure. But they get the second opinion says, yes, got to take it out. And they go, well, I'm going to find somebody who tells me I don't have to because that's really what I want. Right. Yeah, that's right. not helpful per se. The doctor who says, well, you don't need the surgery, you know, it, it's it's going to kill you. But, yeah, forget the surgery. Go ahead and die without surgery. I mean, that's a foolish way to look at life, in my opinion. If you know you'll die without it, you you get the surgery. But the popular position that you want to make people feel good means you let them die from a tumor and that death could have been prevented. Spiritually speaking, if we leave a person in their sin, when we can point to them the need to leave that sin behind, that's loving and that's caring. It may not be welcome, but it's loving and caring. And so part of the challenge is to listen first and hear the person out but also to simply point out there's a flaw in what you're thinking or the way you're expressing that. It actually isn't good for you. Um, we have a culture in the United States, unfortunately, at this time, which is pretty much, well, pushed down throats of many of us, that you can't criticize someone else or it's hatred. Well, if, if something is wrong or false, you point it out. When something is not true, you point it out. Now, the attitude with which we do that and the approach we take, that may be the problem rather than the words we use. But the Lord says to the church, preach repentance and forgiveness to the whole world, to all nations, to all people. Repentance means what you're doing now is wrong. You need to admit it's wrong and turn from it. If you don't tell someone it's wrong, there's no way they can repent. And so the, the issue is never, is it popular? The issue is, how do we point people to the truth? And the other thing is, Satan will always attack the truth, and the darkness will always fight against the light. And and the idea that the uh, the culture wants to make anybody who says something against a popular view haters, well, 
that's not necessarily accurate. If you, if you speak the truth in love, it's not hate. And if you hold back the truth thinking it's love, it may actually be the exact opposite. And so we have to take a look at what Joab and his army do here. God uses them yep. to bring about a positive result. And now what's happening next is the real challenge to recognize what's going on. And yeah. I'm going to put it this way. When the king does his work, the people are blessed by the outcome. David sent out his messengers. They came back embarrassed. David sends out his army. They come back having pushed the enemy away, but the enemy haven't stopped yet. So we should probably work through the rest of the chapter and see where that leads us. <laughs> Let's do that. So uh, we ended with Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. Now starting with verse 15. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadad-Ezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates, and they came to Helam with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadad-Ezer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Assyrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadad-Ezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. <laughs> That's a... That's a great way to phrase that at the end, right? So yeah. they were afraid to come and help out. Yep. Yeah. Nope, we're done. I guess they thought that the people of God were pushovers, and that's yeah. not true back then. May it not be true today. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, the thing we notice is that the Syrians saw they'd been defeated, but now they're going to go and give it the second effort, if you will. And so the uh, the ruler gathers his army sends it out at their head, this Shobach, the commander. And David is told this, and then David gathers the people, and David goes out to fight. Reminds me of the account of, of the problem that David had when he commits adultery with Bathsheba. In the spring of the year when kings go out to war, David stayed in Jerusalem. When the king does what he's sent to do, the people of God flourish and succeed. And so the king leads his people into combat. The, the son of God goes forth to war who follows in his train. This is the concept that the son of David is the one who is going to save the people. Jesus riding into Jerusalem. Save us now, son of David. When David goes out to war, the people win. This is the key. When David goes out to war, the people win. The people of God win. And so David leads his soldiers into combat, and they fled before Israel. And David, not personally, but David as the commander, kills 700 of the chariot men, 40,000 horsemen, and their commander is wounded, and so he dies in combat. And when they saw that the kings of the other nations, cities around, saw that these servants of Hadadezer were killed. They made peace and became subject to them. The, the 
idea, if you can't beat them, join them, is sort of going on here, but at least if you can't beat them, stop them from killing you. They became subject, but keep in mind the Romans passage that says, in Christ we are more than conquerors. The problem with these conquered people is they will later rebel. They will come back and attack at another time. What we have in Jesus Christ is not merely conquering, it's complete victory. We're not occupying enemy territory. We are in the world, but not of the world. We are among that which seeks to destroy God and his truth. But our Lord and Master Jesus is with us always, and he has overcome the world. It's already been defeated by him. And so we're more than conquerors. We are co-heirs with Christ. And so we look at the people of God going out to fight against the enemies attacking. And David says this again and again. We heard it earlier when Joab said it. Uh, you know, they've, they've, they've come against Yahweh so that we are fighting for the cities of our God, not just for ourselves, but for the people of God, and in particular, those who can't fight for themselves. While we were still sinners, God showed his love for us and that Christ died for us. For a good person, one might be willing to die, maybe, but Christ wasn't waiting for us to be good. He died when we were still sinners to set us free. And then he leads us, and he says, by the way, I've already won the victory, but the enemy hasn't fully surrendered, so the fight will continue. And then he sends us out being wise as serpents, gentle as doves, which has always puzzled most of us. How do you do both those? Well, here we see David, who has been gentle as a dove, sending out his messengers at first, trying to build peace. And when it was rejected, then he went out and he struck like a serpent and destroyed the enemy. And again, this is God at work through his servant. They all made peace with Israel. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. And that continues until Solomon dies and then things change. But as long as the house of David is identified as ruling this territory with the united power of the people of God behind him and fighting literally as Yahweh's sword. And that's, you know, that's the thing about David. He said, we read in the other chapters over the past several months, um, well, two months, that David could have killed Saul at any time and claimed the throne as his own, but David never does that. David waits for God's hand to give him what he needs. And then what's the criticism he gets when, when Nathan comes to him? If you had needed more wives, the Lord would have provided that. Okay, so clearly God is the provider, and that's true for us as well. Whatever we need in daily life, God provides. You know, I didn't get up this morning and turn on the oxygen-making trees to make sure I'd be able to breathe all day long. God took care of that. Right. Yeah. And so we look at the God who always provides what we need, and we needed a Savior. He sent us one. We need protection today from the attacks of Satan. We have it through his word, through his gifts to us in baptism in the Lord's Supper, in the body of the church where Christ is head and his members are joined— We have this protection. Does it show up as power and force? Not in a physical sense. But in a spiritual sense, it cannot be defeated. And we see that as David leads the people out to combat, they win. And as Christ goes before us and leads the way, and we look to our author and perfecter of the faith we have, as one translation puts the phrase in Hebrews, we are following the one who has already walked the road through death to victory. And he says, follow me 
walk in my way. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and, and I lead you to the victory you need. And in Christ Jesus, we have it. Now, in this world, we're going to have much suffering. In this world, things are going to go poorly again and again and again. And I'll repeat that if I need to. But the general concept is to remember that this world is passing away. What we have here, wonderful things that are gifts from God. We, we use them. We enjoy them. We see them as great blessings. But we have something even greater waiting for us. And, and it's more than a, a place where we get to be the subjects. We are co-heirs with Christ and Scripture is explicit. We will share in his reign because we are one with him. This is uh, something unlike whatever the Syrians wanted. They wanted power and authority. They wanted wealth, but they weren't going to hold on to it. What you and I have been promised in Christ lasts forever. And, and that's what Satan does not want us to believe. So he's got to attack that. And he does that by trying to get us to doubt that God is still active in the world. And so we look at what God's given us in the world, and it's not force, it's not power of arms, it's not financial wealth. It's the promise he's never going to abandon us, and he's given us peace in Christ who leads us and walks with us today. Well, I would like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Stephen Tice, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Thanks, Pastor, as always, for thank being you. on the show. Folks, that conflict that uh, Pastor Tice was talking about with the Ammonites, it continues for a few more chapters. But on Monday's program, sort of in the midst of this conflict, we're made witnesses to an indiscretion by David, an interlude that lasts for a couple of chapters. You know, it begins, as you've already heard, you know, in the springtime when kings usually go to war. David stays behind in Jerusalem while his army is off fighting with the Ammonites. Well, as the story goes, and I'm sure you've heard it, he sees a beautiful woman one night as he's as uh, she's bathing. He's on his rooftop, and he finds out that her name's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, one of his loyal soldiers. He sends for her, he lays with her, and she becomes pregnant. David makes a plan to hide what he's done, but will it succeed? How far will he go to hide his adultery? And how will God respond to his actions? Well, well, we'll talk about all that on Monday and Tuesday, actually. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word.